While Scotland is branded by its famous Highland bagpipes, Ireland has long made a very different kind that plays a much wider range of music. Meet the tireless, obsessive masters of Irish Illan pipes. Craftsmanship Quarterly presents Do the Most Interesting Musical Pipes Come from Ireland? by Larry Gallagher. John Butler remembers well the exact moment his life changed forever. He was a teenager, lying in bed in the Dublin suburbs, long past midnight. The late-night DJ played a new cut from Moving Hearts, a Celtic rock fusion band that was popular at the time. Until then, Butler would have run from anything that smelled of Irish culture. He would have spun the tuner through the dreaded Radio Nagaltachta station to get to the dial's safer stations at either end. But what he heard that night caught him completely off guard. It was an otherworldly buzz, a consciousness-rattling thrum that set up a sympathetic vibration with some part of his soul. As soon as it started with the pipes, I thought, Jesus Christ, what is this? Butler says. I can still remember the feeling. It was something about the sound the reed made that grabbed me. I had no idea what the instrument looked like. All I knew was that this sound was totally captivating and I had to find out about it. The instrument Butler heard that night was none other than the Illin Pipes, the Irish incarnation of the bagpipe. His conversion story is not unlike what you hear from Illin Pipers and pipe makers the world over. That fateful evening would set Butler on a winding path that would lead him from the suburbs of Dublin to a small workshop on an island off Ireland's west coast, where he would become one of some three dozen artisans in the world dedicated to creating this delightful and maddening musical instrument. One uncharacteristically rainless day last winter, I made the trip down from my adopted home of Sligo, a few hours north of Butler's shop, to spend a day with him. Among pipe makers, Butler is no superstar. The pipes he makes are elegant, modern by piping standards, but he still considers himself in the middle of the long journey toward mastery. He lives on Ackle, an island of rugged beauty that begins two or three stone throws off the west coast of the mainland of County Mayo. From the back steps of his studio, he's got a view looking back to Ackle Sound and the Ballycroy Mountains. Butler is tall and lanky, approaching 50, and long days hunched over a workbench have left him with some serious neck and back issues, which have forced him to take a temporary step back from his normal production schedule of three to four pipe sets a year. To help me understand what these instruments involve, Butler straps on a set of his pipes. More than one observer over the years has likened the Illin pipes to wrestling an octopus with the tentacles wrapped around the victim's midriff. The name Illin, which sounds like Illin, as the Beastie Boys would have pronounced it, comes from the Irish word for elbow, because both of those, belonging to the piper, are deployed to produce sound. Under the right elbow, 
the player squeezes a bellows, which pumps air into a leather bladder of a bag that is squeezed by the left elbow. The air is forced down the neck of the chanter, an oboe-like tube of hardwood with a double reed at its throat. Underlying the melody are drones, ancillary tubes that generate three octaves of a single tone, over which the melody dances. Punctuating the rhythm in counterpoint are notes from the regulators, up to three additional tubes with metal keys that are played with the wrist of the right hand. Traditional is the term used to describe the music that is played on these pipes. Most of the tunes played in Irish sessions are of unknown origin, handed down through the generations from musician to musician, full of endless variations, with multiple names for each tune, and nothing approaching a definitive version, but generally recognizable whether in Tipperary or Tokyo. The music is built around melodies which tend to be relentless and serpentine, heavily ornamented with a variety of trills, warbles, and slides. Just as playing this contraption requires coordination of multiple body parts, making illin pipes requires coordinated proficiency in a number of different media. Woodworking, metal smithery, reed making, and leather work. Constructing a set of pipes with all the bells and whistles takes 300 to 400 hours, generally spread out over a year. All but a few of the 200-odd pieces that make up a full set are made by hand. You can't get too deep into any discussion of piping without first acknowledging the loudest pipes in the family. The Highland pipes, as Scottish bagpipes are called, are surely the most visible member, and they remain the most widely played. Their totemic import to Scotland and the cultural stamp these bagpipes have made on the world cannot be rivaled by any of their cousins. What most of us don't know, however, is that the Highland pipes are capable of only playing a single octave. Okay, an octave plus one note. Meanwhile, the Illin pipes have a full upper octave available, which, along with the chords provided by the regulators, gives it a much wider range of expression. Butler, an obvious partisan for the pipes he plays and makes, describes the difference thusly. For a start, the Highland pipes are an outdoor instrument and are generally associated with armies and marching, that kind of thing. So really, they're for scaring the shit out of your opponents as you're coming over the hill. Fans of the Illin pipes love to point out that the pipes you hear on the soundtrack to the film Braveheart, even when Highland pipes are what you see on screen, were produced on Illin pipes. These rivals make only two of many dozens of different kinds of pipes that have appeared over the centuries in nearly every European country and many beyond. In the Caucasus, in Turkey and Iran, as far away as South India, even factoring in regional chauvinism, one could make a reasonable case that the Illin pipes have emerged as the most culturally vital of the lot. The world of Illin piping has never been so healthy, says Emmett Gill, archivist at Napierbury Illin, Irish for the Illin pipers, 
or NPU, the Dublin-based nonprofit that tirelessly promotes the pipes both locally and globally. NPU regularly loans out more than 100 sets of pipes to novice pipers around the country, hosts concerts, classes, and workshops, and publishes a small mountain of books and videos. According to NPU's official guess, there are approximately 7,000 Illin Pipers across the world, with significant pockets of the diaspora not only in the U.S. and Australia, but also in such unlikely places as Argentina and Japan. Near-Death Experiences The very next day, after his midnight epiphany, Butler tracked down his friend Owen, the only kid in the neighborhood who played what he now realized were Illin pipes. By wild coincidence, it turned out that his friend's pipes were made by none other than Davy Spillane, the very piper that he had heard on the radio the previous night. He was my new hero. He was my new favorite musician. He lived a mile away. And he made pipes. Illin pipes can be polarizing in their effect on people. For every person like Butler, to whom they say, Come hither. There are probably two to whom they say, Back away slowly, then run. The definition of a gentleman, according to an old joke, is someone who knows how to play the pipes, but chooses not to. The other standard joke among pipers is that a piper spends half his time tuning and the other half playing out of tune. Butler attributes these slurs, at least in part, to the rough history of the craft, which has survived two prominent brushes with extinction, forcing several generations of makers to have to relearn it the hard way. Though versions of reed and sack-based music-making devices have been around for millennia, the ancestor of the modern Illin pipes, the pastoral pipe, has been dated to around the 1720s. When it emerged initially, its handmade detail would have made it prohibitively expensive for all but the wealthy. Over time, the pipes gradually drifted down through the classes, eventually becoming a signature instrument of wandering minstrels, who made their living providing culture and entertainment for many a rural community. But, like many other things Irish, the ranks of itinerant pipers were decimated by the potato famine in the mid-19th century. And by the turn of the 20th century, nearly all of the noted pipemakers had either fled the country or died penniless in workhouses. Francis O'Neill, the Chicago police chief, whose 1903 compilation of Irish tunes, O'Neill's Music of Ireland, remains the most exhaustive ever published, once put the situation thusly. As the limit of development had been reached, the vogue of the Illin pipe had declined, and notwithstanding the agitation for its revival in recent years, the outlook to an enthusiast presents but little ground for optimism. Enter the Rosam family. If there is a first name in Irish piping, it would be Rosam. Over six unbroken generations, continuing to the present day, the Rosams have been a constant force in the piping world. 
In the middle of the 19th century, paterfamilias Samuel Rosum sent his three boys to study music theory with a German tutor. Son William went on to become a pipe maker in Dublin. But it was grandson Leo, born in 1903 and reared in his father's shop, who would refine the craft to what many consider its highest expression, producing pipes until his untimely death in 1970. Alas, that year marked the beginning of another dark age in the history of the instrument. By that point, there were no full-time pipe makers left on the planet. Even in Dublin, only a few dedicated amateurs kept the tradition alive, turning out serviceable sets and making whatever repairs they could. The pipes got a bad rap for a while, says Butler. When I was learning, they just weren't in tune, and that was that. People just got on with it. The pipes that I started with were probably never in tune. For most of today's pipe makers, Butler included, the connection to the Rosums is more than abstract. The critical dimensions of the pipes he makes are reverse-engineered from the family's legacy pipes. To illustrate, Butler shows me a set of 96 probes that he used to fathom the shape of the bore in a 1924 chanter made by William Rosum. With the precision that you might expect of an engineer, Butler charted the results on a graph. He found that as it expanded from the 5 millimeter opening at the narrowest part to 13 millimeters at the bell, the bore followed neither a straight line nor a predictable curve. Instead, he found a landscape of subtly undulating peaks and valleys, up and down the interior. Comparing these graphs over a number of chanters confirmed his suspicion that these fluctuations were intentionally created by the maker to produce a specific sound. Butler used these principles to help him pursue a particularly elusive, subjective quality of tone, what pipers call sweetness that tends to lie beyond the discernment of the neophyte. As is often the case in a craft so obscure, the craftsmanship starts a few levels of remove from the artifact it will produce. Butler's first task was to make the tools needed to craft the finished product. One of the first is called a reamer, a long, thin shaft of carbon steel whose profile follows the internal contours in the bore, in reverse. Between the reamers and the reeds, that's where the magic lies, says Butler. It's really down to the amount of time and detail you put into getting these right. The chanter, the primary cylinder on which the melodies are played, is a tube of hardwood that's been turned on a lathe. The chanter is typically made from African hardwoods, such as blackwood and ebony. But historically, it came from a wide range of woods, from boxwood to greenheart, salvaged from the old docks of Dublin. Due to the living nature of wood, the chanter must be initially bored and left to dry for up to a year, because minute shrinkages in the interior dimensions can have major effects on the intonation of the instrument. While Butler appreciates the old-school handcrafting his trade involves, he's not shy about exploiting the best of modern technology 
to help him over the finish line. To that end, he's made ingenious use of computer-assisted design, or CAD files, which have allowed him to quickly cut out pieces with a water jet. As with any pipe maker, the central tool in Butler's shop is his lathe. This should come as no surprise, since Illin pipes are essentially an agglomeration of different sized cylinders attached to a bag. The lathe of choice for pipe makers in this part of the world is a vintage metal lathe made by the English company Myford during the heyday of British machining in the mid-20th century. The other half of a pipe's mystery lies in its reeds, the material that generates the sound that is amplified and modified by the rest of the apparatus. In terms of raw materials, the reeds are by far the cheapest part of the pipes to fabricate, but they are the most critical element in the whole machine, and their vicissitudes have nearly undone many a pipe maker. Reed making is the black art of pipe making, says Butler. You can have all the dimensions in the world, but one day you can make a reed and it's beautiful, and the next day you do everything the same and it doesn't work. There's just no logic to it. Your hit rate definitely improves with practice, but you still go through these periods where things just don't go well. A Dark Night of the Soul The Illin pipes employ a double reed, similar to those found in the oboe and the bassoon. These reeds come from the cane of the same plant, Arundo donax, from which all woodwind reeds are crafted. Botanically speaking, A. donax is a giant grass that grows wild around the Mediterranean. In California, which many makers believe supplies the cane best suited for pipe reeds, the plant is classified as an invasive weed. Reeds start as a tube of cane, five inches long and about an inch in diameter. An experienced maker can render a basic functional reed in under an hour. Whether the reed will ever truly sing is largely in the hands of the reed gods. No amount of intervention can salvage a dud. So these get quickly shunted to the dustbin. If a reed proves sound, however, a maker might tweak it on and off for weeks to achieve its much-sought-after qualities, sweetness of tone, rich overtone, and reliable intonation. Tangling with this challenge once put Butler through a particularly dark night of the soul. That, years later, still fills him with dread. Early in his pipe-making career, he found himself dissatisfied with the quality and consistency of his reed-making, so he set aside a few days to hone his skills. There was just something missing from it. As your ear gets better and better attuned, that's what you hear. That's probably the curse of pipe-making, or any instrument-making. Your standards rise, and they probably rise quicker than your abilities. It was three months before he produced a reed he considered acceptable. I went through hell. Everything fell apart. I couldn't take it any further. And then I lost my ability to make a good read. I'm sitting in this isolated schoolhouse in this windswept valley in the middle of nowhere in Ackle. If I can't make reeds, I can't be a pipe maker. What am I doing? 
Luckily for his sanity, a pipe-making associate from England soon showed up and dropped by his shop. I kind of combined my method with his method, and I started getting working reeds again. At that point, I really considered walking away from it, because it was so head-wrecking. Everything came together. Nothing in Butler's past had trained him for pipe-making's peculiar challenges. Though he has always considered himself a solid player, he never felt piping would be anything but an avocation. In university, he got a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering and a master's in industrial design. That set him on a typically modern career track, moving from designing cardboard boxes to test probes for motherboards, and finally to medical devices, specifically new technologies for managing wounds created by laparoscopic surgery. That was a dream job, he says. Developing intellectual property and trying to sell it to the big boys in the market. All the while, Butler kept up with his piping, in the back of his mind, hoping that one of the medical devices would catch the market's attention and make squillionaires of him and his cohorts. At one point in his early career, in an exercise suggested by a friend who was a life coach, Butler sat down and wrote an essay titled My Ideal Life, in which he describes himself living in West Ireland, engaged in some activity that involved working with his hands. Unfortunately, or fortunately for the pipe-making world, before he made his first squillion, Butler fell prey to venture capitalist downsizing. In the following years, Butler sold a house and, while bumming around the west of Ireland, helped a pipe-making friend make a pile of chanters for NPU. Within two years of losing his job, he found himself living in West Ireland, working with his hands, living his ideal life. It can drive you around the bend. Butler has worked his own unique visual motif into the design of his pipes, a small asymmetrical trapezoidal flourish on the metal keys, which is echoed in the puck at the end of the bass drone. While that touch gives his pipes a kind of modern sleekness, it has raised an eyebrow or two among the more conservative guardians of the tradition. But Butler doesn't mind. A pipe maker is tied into physics as to where the holes are and the shape of the bore, he says. But the externals of the set, that's where I get to put in my own aesthetics. At some point, of course, the high ideals of beauty, spirit and creation meet the hard realities of food, clothing and shelter. For all his labor and experience, Butler can charge about 8,150 euros, $9,400, for a full set of pipes. That's squarely in the middle of the Illin pipe market, where a single set ranges from 5,000 to 15,000 euros. This is excluding the array of fantastically cheap Pakistani sets available on eBay for as little as $200. Absolute rubbish is the general consensus on these instruments among the pipers with whom I spoke. 
Butler's price tag might scare away a beginning piper, but the reality is that many people invest in pipes in stages, with the set's most expensive parts coming later. All that a beginner needs are the chanter, bellows, and a bag. For a practice set like this, Butler charges 1,650 euros. The next step is to add a set of drones, the three additional tubes that create the root note over three octaves, for another 2,500 euros. Finally come the regulators, the set of wrist-operated keys that allow for chordal counterpoint. These require a great deal of metalwork, which is why Butler prices them at around 4,000 euros. Subtract the cost of materials, which Butler guesstimates at around 850 euros, and divide the remainder by the 300 to 400 hours of labor a set requires, and you realize what any pipe maker will tell you. This profession will never make you rich, at least not financially. And yet, for the handful of pipers at the top of the craft, it offers an odd sort of job security. Jeff Woof, who is widely considered one of the two or three finest pipe makers on the planet, can command 15,000 euros for a full set of his pipes. At age 69, he's got a waiting list so long that he has essentially closed his books for the rest of his life. Although he reserves the right to bypass the waiting list if a world-class piper comes shopping. The waiting time could be 10 years or more, he says. Some have waited longer. From his workshop in central France, Woof can reliably crank out two full sets a year. And yet, for all his acclaim, he says, I have never made a decent living at the craft, although it has been my only source of income for 41 years. Ditto Benedict Kohler and David Quinn, a Vermont-based duo who are two of the world's best pipe makers and who split the craft's skills between them. They charge $12,000 for a full set, and they too have a 10-year waiting list. Curiously, of the Illin pipe makers who are generally considered to be the world's top masters, most actually live outside of Ireland. Besides Woof, Kohler, and Quinn, three honorable mentions are Makoto Nakatsui of Japan, Chris Coe in England, and Andreas Roge of Germany. Customers for some of these makers could wait years and still never get their pipes. There is a long tradition of unsuccessful order placement in the pipe-making world, says Bill Hahnemann, a transplanted American who makes pipes in the seaside town of Skerries, just up the coast from Dublin. Hahnemann himself has been on the bad end of one of those deals. He once gave a maker something north of a thousand euros as a deposit, was informed repeatedly that his pipes were right around the corner, then, after six years, accepted the reality that he was never going to get them. In my case, Hahnemann says, I suspect that the maker had pretty high standards, and I think he actually did have an instrument partly completed for me, and probably destroyed it, because one thing or another he couldn't make. He went down that spiral. So far, Butler has never found himself in that particular nightmare, 
But if he had known what he knows now, he's not sure he would have chosen the pipe maker's path. It's a blessing and a curse, he says. It's kind of crazy, this striving for perfection that can't be attained. It can drive you round the bend. Teaches you great patience, I suppose. Still, if you're not an optimist, you'd never go into making pipes. The Revival of an Anachronism In an industrial park just south of the Dublin airport sits a shop the likes of which the world has never seen. There, behind Scaftex Scaffolding Limited, and around the corner from Industrial Seals and Gaskets, is a sign that reads, Pipecraft. Flanked by these models of modern light industry is the teaching facility of NPU, one of the organization's bold attempts to avoid the kind of near-death experiences that pipe-making has barely survived over the centuries. One Wednesday morning at the end of the winter, I dropped into the facility to be a fly on the wall for a day. A half-dozen current students were creating sets of playable pipes, their year-long project. The instructor, Donaka Dwyer, was born and bred in Dublin and has been a devotee of Illin Pipes since he was a teenager. When his guardian older sister punished him for a night of underage drinking by signing him up for piping lessons. I heard Seamus Ennis and it ruined my life, he says, mostly in jest, referring to one of the 20th century's titans of piping. I'd be working in a bank now, if not for that. After years as a journeyman player in pubs here and on the continent, Dwyer has managed to patch together a career for himself in adjacent fields. He has made and repaired pipes, given lessons in pipe and flute playing, and for the past eight years has taught pipecraft classes. Dwyer might have benefited from the class himself, as his own apprenticeship was decidedly less formal. He spent many an hour in the workshop of one Desi Siri, a legendary flute maker in Bray, just south of Dublin. He was a crazy old bastard, says Dwyer. I spent twenty years out there when I could have spent three. The Pipecraft program is part of an ongoing experiment that attempts to answer a common conundrum. What does it take to keep a tradition of craftsmanship alive? In this case, how do you take a quirky trade, populated with autodidacts and eccentrics, and streamline it into a reliable career path for the 21st century? Or is it even possible? To Bill Hahnemann, who helped set up the facility and curricula that eventually became Pipecraft, old-school apprenticeships no longer make any economic sense. It's a marginal proposition, he says. I have thought about taking on an apprentice. It would have to be the right person, but it would cost me money, and I would do it for purely egotistical purposes, because I wanted to pass on what I was doing. Since its formation in 1968, NPU has been working hard to promote the Illin pipes all over the world, both by teaching the instrument and spreading pipe-making know-how. Over the last 30 years, Gay McKeown, the CEO of NPU, 
says he's seen a real resurgence of interest in the pipe's music. But the supply of the instrument has not kept up with it, he says. Somehow we have to ensure that there are instruments for future generations and that there is R&D being done. To that end, and to hopefully avoid a repeat of the trade's close brushes with extinction, NPU has organized countless workshops and stocked its website with videos of some of the finest pipemakers in the world basically sharing their hard-earned intellectual property. As generous and rare as that might be, it still constitutes only the tiniest first step in this craft. To become a high-end maker takes many, many years, McKeown says. It wouldn't be unfair to say that it takes 10 years for the most committed and the most skilled makers, but you've got to start someplace. At this point, some 160 students have passed through NPU's various programs. After eight months of this class, Dwyer's pupils will depart with a set of pipes of their own making. Through that experience, Dwyer hopes that enough seeds will have been planted to keep everyone in pipes for at least another generation. In the meantime, this quirky craft continues to defy the odds. It's a refreshingly anachronistic pursuit, says Hanneman, and I think there is a bit of salvation in it for this disembodied 21st century. The Most Interesting Musical Pipes Come From Ireland was written by Larry Gallagher, a journalist, carpenter, and musician in his own right. The story was read by Mitchell Greenberg, a veteran actor in New York City. The story originally appeared in Craftsmanship Quarterly, a multimedia online magazine about artisans, innovators, and the architecture of excellence. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship can be found at craftsmanship.net.